This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Four and a half, one, two and a half minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on the three triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxall. I'm Bron Burton. I'm Dr. Beach. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Sure. Oh, good, good morning. morning. Tough the morning. Tough the morning. I've just got to start with a, a humble kind of um, thank you to Timothy. Oh, thanks, Tim. Tim. Tim Thorpe. He is... I've really run out of superlatives to describe he, that he's run. F- he's flown out of the studio to take a call. He's, yeah, he, doing I've, his job I've been again. watching him in action over the last half hour. He's been... Jug- he's, he's like an octopus. He he's, is. He's got eight arms and he's answering phones and putting on tracks and writing things down and, and dealing with things. And dancing. I've been watching him in action for the last eight or nine years that I've had the pleasure of being in this studio on a Sunday morning and I am just continually awe-inspired. That man. There's actually there's a fabulous piece if you haven't come across oh, yes. it yet. Little uh, little um, video piece on the Triple R website where you, that you can access, or if you have already liked Triple R on Facebook, you can see it there as well. Uh, little little bit about Tim. Oh, the jewel in camera. the junkyard. It's junk, beautiful. Junk heap. Junk heap. Did I, did I say that? Oh, God. Jewel in the junk heap. Um, <laughs> but anyway, no, that's that's actually about um, at Triple R's 40th anniversary. So this and one's him not about being. Radiothon. 
But yes. Him, it's about him as yeah. one of the jewels. And there's a there's a, a lovely piece for um, featuring Phoebe Squared as well. So they're, they're rolling these out. I think they're going to be seven of them in total. So fabulous. As a prelude to, uh, well, our 40th birthday, but also as a prelude to um, Radiothon, presumably. Yes. Only two weeks to go. That's exciting. That's right. Hey, today's show is a, a rip snorter. Yeah. Oh, that's a marine term. I just thought I'd, I'd mm-hmm. check, yeah. 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 I can. There was a. Wasn't there a. Wasn't there like a best of yes. seventy eight called Rip Snorter? I think it was seventy five or seventy six. Okay. Yeah, but well, yeah, well, maybe it was seventy eight. Was that the one with the girl scratching her behind? I don't know. Oh, there was a short pair of mm. denim shorts. I don't remember that. Yeah. Bit. No. Well, Peter Anywho, and I are of a different um, persuasion. Right. We remember things like that. Anywho, yes, big show. Um, so Sean Wilmore and John Fleming are coming in shortly from uh, the Thin Green Line to talk about a uh, what the Thin Green Line is all about. Um, we caught up with Sean briefly last week on the program via the phone, the telephone, the telephone. Oh, telephone. Telephone. Oh. Uh, to, I'm trying to think of what the BFG calls the telephone. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I yes, we're having I one divert. of those days, aren't we? Uh, and so to talk about International Ranger Day, uh, which took place uh, last Sunday, um, and then also what this is all about, which is a big comedy festival, comedy gala at the Gasso tonight. At the Gasso? Yes. No. Yes. Wow. So it's a big, big fundraiser. Anyway, I'm going to let them do all the talking and they're going to come in. And John's brought his guitar in as you well. Are. So very... Uh, It'll be fun. Lovely. We haven't had live music for a while here on Radio Marinara. No, we haven't. So oh, and Peter, I've got to ask, I'm sorry, but Peter's wearing some kind of football scarf. Who's Peter? Sorry, Dr. Beach is wearing some kind of football scarf. I know. I, I went to a game yesterday at the MCG, which gladdened the heart of this Melbourne supporter. <laughs> it's, it's out, the flag's out. I figured Is out. It? Yeah, it's how out. does that work? We've got to win the next three games. Right. In the north or west coast, we've got to lose <laughs> the next three games. <laughs> St Kilda have got to lose today, and then we're in the finals. And once we're in the finals, it's then all, clearly it's the all flag is yeah. ours. I'm going to bring you guys back on track here. Sorry, <laughs> to talk about marine and coastal things. I just, I just what had for? A, What's this program about? It's not football. <laughs> I just had a moment of mathematical possibility. I love that term. Anyway, yes, and then um, afterwards, um, James. Fitzsimon, Dr. James Fitzsimon is going to join us. He and Associate Professor Jeff Westcott have just released a new book called Big, Bold and Blue and it is not about the Melbourne Football Club. It is... It'll be about, about the Bulldogs. It's about Associate <laughs> Professor Westcott's coming. It'll be Carlton, well, wouldn't it? I know, but if it's Jeff, it'll be... Uh, yeah, anyway, it'll be the... It'll be Carlton if it's Big, Bold and Blue. Well, I know, but it's Jeff, so it'll be Bulldogs. Well, you, anyway. you brought up football um, again, Brian. <laughs> I'm trying to bring us back here, guys. Come on. Um, and um, Anyway, it's great. It's a fantastic new book about um essentially about marine protected areas in australia in depth and a depth that i nerded out on i gotta say i totally nerded out it's, on. it's unput downable it, 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 i loved it but and i haven't read the whole thing but it's got they've edited this fantastic book and anyway it's about the lessons learned of the journey of marine protected areas across the country so james has been a pop in we'll have a chat about that and then you've been finding out about whales is I've, it? Been, I've been doing a little bit of research on whales and a, well, a, a wonderful paper that's been produced in the Journal of Marine Mammal Science recently. It's actually a review article where somebody has taken lots of bits of disparate information, brought them together. Nice package for people to read. It's about humpback whales. And are mm. humpback whales altruistic? And altruistic is where, or altruism, is where you do something purely for the benefit of others. Lots of reports, anecdotal. This person's 
grabbed them all together, of humpback whales mobbing together to protect not only other humpback whales from killer whales, mm. but also to protect other species Ooh. from killer whales. Oh, I, know. Uh, I can't other, wait to other talk species about of whales? Other species of... Cetaceans, seals. Marine mammals. Right. All marine so mammals. So it extends right. to seals One as case, well. even a fish. Oh, oh wow. come on. I kid you not. Humpbacks eat fish. Humpback, no, no, they're baleen. Oh, they're baleen. I beg your pardon, they yeah. are too. Yeah, they don't have they teeth. Suck out. They they have, suck well, their out. teeth are modified, so yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they suck stuff they out of them. They suck out the I krill. Was, I was about to say the atmosphere, but the water. Yeah, well, if they go into the atmosphere, anyway. <laughs> um, sorry, that's really interesting. Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a whale. We're going to finish up the show with some whales. Yeah, from Rob, Robert some, Pittman. Who's got a bit of news? Anyone got a little bit of news? Well, I've got one tiny bit of news mm-hmm. here. Um, farmed salmon go wild is the, the headline for this. <laughs> so Norway's wild salmon <laughs> owe part of their genetic makeup to escapees from salmon farms. Salmon farms, <gasps> wild salmon, you know, one inside the cage, one outside the cage. Uh, and they've been getting it on. Well, a couple of escapees from within the cage to the outside of the cage and they've been interbreeding with wild salmon, which might be a oh. bit of a bit of a worry because the farmed oh. salmon are less genetically fit because, they, you know, they have a pretty yeah, cushy yeah. life on the couch watching footy the whole time. Well, they watch the Norwegian fed. version of footy, which they I think do. is curling. <laughs> and um, turns out that you know it can detect these Norwegian biologists have detected um, up to forty two percent commonality in uh, DNA between uh, um, farm uh, salmon and wild salmon. Four percent up to six percent up to forty two percent of common genetic heritage um, that between is an these organisms. Forty two percent seems amazing to me. I haven't read the article in depth. I'm admit I'm just looking at a little snippet here in last week's nature. Hey, can I just can I can I ask a question about this? So salmon are broadcast spawners, aren't they? It means they put their bits up into the water column. Their sperm, and then mm, therefore... No, I think... I, I don't, don't salmon kind of do it on rocks and then the, uh, the boys come they? along and they do, their, do right. their, their biz or their jizz on that? Okay, we, we unfortunately don't know this piece of information, do we? Salmo Sola is the salmon. Right. I, I agree, Bron. I don't think that was too far. But anyway... I, I um, don't know. So, yeah, because that would, would, that would mean... Because they're, they're not in... They're, they're, they're netted. So it's not like there's walls... So, you know, if they were broadcast born, they'd just it'd all float out. It wouldn't yep. be surprising that you'd be cross-breeding with... We need John. Where's John when we need Ask him? a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what we're supposed to be? <laughs> Three PhDs at the room. And, yeah, and, no, and no information. <laughs> hey, can I just mention this one super quickly? Absolutely. This is a big thank you to Ken who sent in um, a book which he actually compiled himself. It's called Bass Strait Whales and it's got a wonderful... It's a hardcover. I think it's one of those Apple books that you can do. But it's... Um, it's uh, Sorry? One of the what? Well, you know, as, as in... Oh, you can you like make your own yes, book. Yes, yes. I yeah. think it look like an apple to me at all. No. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful piece that he's put together. And I just wanted to say thank you very much, Ken. And what I'm going to do is um, take some photos with my phone and put them on our Facebook page just so you can see. But he, he wrote a really lovely note oh, and cool. um, made an, uh, just a comment too about, because we've talked a lot about um, oil and gas platforms. And this, these are from his... Um, from his note that he popped into the into the envelope. Um, he says, I know oil and gas pl- platforms get a bad rap from time to time, deservedly so, but Bastrat One's become amazing marine ecosystems over the years um, and everyone on board are conscious in keeping them like that. So I thought that was pretty cool and good point and thank you, Ken, for sending that in because um, some of the photos that he's taken from, from the rigs are just spectacular of these, uh, of these whales. Oh, wow. Hmm. Cool. Thank you very much.
Welcome, John Fleming. Thank you, Bron. And welcome, Sean Wilmore. Thank you, Bron. Great to have you in studio. We had you on the phone last week. Yeah, that was my lazy version. <laughs> ah, we'll expect a lot more this week. <laughs> um, so, uh, where shall we start? Thin Green Line. Um, for those who haven't heard you, we've talked about Thin Green Line a lot on the on the program before. It was uh, International Ranger Day last World Ranger Day. Uh, yeah, World Ranger Day. Yeah. Yep. yep. And um, yeah, let's let's give a quick thirty. 30 yeah, seconds sure. On well, well, well now the exciting news is we have a comedian on our board of directors, John Fleming, <laughs> one of our board members. Uh, apparently, the board meetings weren't entertaining <laughs> enough, so they had to bring someone on to crack some jokes in the middle yeah, of the well, meeting. Well, we had all these corporate types keeping it all very you know, stern and governance, and I thought, geez, a bit of lateral thinking might be nice. <laughs> Do you is think it, it means that now you've got a comedian like stuff will really get done now? You know, like comedians, you know. <laughs> well, well, we, even if things aren't going so well, at least we can have a laugh. At it. <laughs> do you actually have that as part of your agenda every time the board meets that there needs to be, do you have to kind of yeah, do a bit, the, bit of stand-up? The, the acceptance of last week's minutes, there's the uh, the conflicts of interest, then there's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, John, John's kind of surprised us all. He's actually very officious in the meetings and very thoughtful and uh, he doesn't crack many jokes at all. We're all a bit disappointed. So. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> well, I think I have to get serious about you know, something. You'll have to include it as, as a key performance in indicator as you kind of when you do your business planning well he has done really well for us this this year though for world ranger day so i mean it is a serious issue we yep. look after rangers around the world and we really see on a roll of 110 rangers um were killed this last 12 months which is always uh, you know kind of a sobering thing to to release and so but john's brought his comedic connections to world ranger day and we're having a fundraiser tonight with uh brian nankervis and um uh, Mick Malloy, Dave O'Neill and John himself and uh, support from Pusherman Blues as well. Um, so yeah, so it's there's stuff going on but we're, we gave out $1.1 million to Ranger Projects in the last 24 months and you know, we've got a name to do a lot more than that um, but it's kind of community-based events like this that really get us moving. Yeah. Where's most of that 1.1 gone to? Like where's your most biggest target area? Uh, so it's, it's mainly Africa and Asia um, and it's it's predominantly with ranger training, ranger equipping, and then we also do the widow and orphan support of those who are killed in the line of duty. Yeah. So, um, what's on for tonight? You've mentioned the lineup. Yep. So basically, we're at the Gasometer Hotel uh, in in, in uh, Smith Street, Collingwood. Uh, Mick Malloy is our headline, which is uh, brilliant. He's um, right into the Thin Green Line cause. Um, we also, yeah, Brian Nankervis is coming out, and interestingly, he will often host a night like this and MC the night, coming on time and time again to bring people on. But tonight he's doing a spot, so I think he's kind of a little bit excited about <laughs> getting uh, getting to do just a contained bit of comedy. Dave O'Neill is an incredibly reliable and uh, and uh, consistent comedian. He just he does so well and very happy to have him on the show. And I'm going to turn my hand to hosting tonight. It's going to be a bit of music, a bit of bit of comedy, and uh, basically, you know, letting getting out of the way so the other comics can do their thing. So that's my that's my take on the night. Uh, Pusher Man Blues is going to be putting some music in, and uh, Sean's going to be speaking a little bit too, which will no doubt be hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be a great night. It's a Sunday night. We clocked that. So doors are at 7, but it'll all be over by 10.30. Have a couple of beers. All of the uh, Cooper's sales come directly to uh, Thin Green Line. They've donated their beer to us yeah, good on for it. the night, so that's great. Um, so, yeah, a couple of drinks, bit, a few laughs, and uh, it's all over by 10.30, and we've done a good thing. How do you prepare for a night like this where you've got comedy supporting an event, a, a cause which is so serious and it, and it's so sobering and, and you know just even just that number that you mentioned Sean but 
the work that just goes on and on and on. How do, how do you kind of prepare for something like that? Well, I think uh, the, the Thin Green Line's philosophy has always been to talk about the work that they do and, the, you know, as you say, it's very serious work, but then also to give people the opportunity to enjoy themselves while supporting something. So we don't really ever ask for something for nothing. Uh, people can come out, they can have a great time. I mean, we've let all the comedians know about uh, what we're doing and what we're promoting, so they may talk about that or they may just do their comedy material, which everyone loves, and, and have a great time. So there really is, um, it's really just assembling the night, making sure that all the elements are there and, uh, and then letting everyone know about it. Fantastic. So, yeah. And for Sean, for you, is, is, that, is there a balance for you about how, you know, how far you're, you're comfortable with the comedians taking things? Yeah, well, I mean, it has been our philosophy since the beginning to rather than hit people around the head with guilt and say mm-hmm. you must come out because there's bad stuff happening around the world, it's to say, well, look, there is this stuff happening, but you don't have to be a ranger that's getting shot at on the front lines. You just have to come to a comedy gig tonight, you know, and uh, mm. even if it is a Sunday night, you've got to go to work on Monday, you'll have a good story to tell and you'll have a couple of Coopers. And, um, you know, so we just keep it low-edged. We don't get too too heavy. Um, yeah, there is a seriousness. And, I mean, I, I'm speaking tonight and I'll talk about some of that serious stuff and the really good n- news stories too of who we've supported and then I'll let the comedians try and work out how they make that funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just leave that alone, yeah. <laughs> You've um, you've moved from having big, massive gala events, and I've been so you know happy to to come to I think all of them so far. Is this where things are moving for Thin Green Line? Is this? Do you think this will then continue uh, to become an annual event? Well, John heads up our fundraising uh, working group. John, I, I do. <laughs> we just that's a, that's a board subcommittee, isn't it? Okay. It is actually a subcommittee. We are, look, we're just um, getting our strategy in place, and there's a, there's a whole uh, uh, all these different areas from which we derive our, our fundraising activities, and live events is definitely one of them. So I, I would think that the comedy is going to continue as part of the Thin Green Line's kind of arsenal of, uh, of, uh, of creating funds to distribute around the world. Uh, along with music, you know, we've had great associations with people like Gautier and, uh, and Tex Perkins and Nicky Bomber and, and many others. Mm. And uh, so, you know, those kind of associations will continue and now comedy's in there and we've got a whole raft of things. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so many uh, fronts that we can use to, to bring in the money that we need to help the people. That's that right. Help, yeah. And we better mention Paul Simon in there as well. Yeah, oh, we, yeah. we just got a letter from Paul Simon um, this week, uh, well, last week, saying how we love the Thing Green Line Foundation and he signed a guitar that we just recently raffled off. And uh, amongst uh, Santana signed it and a bunch of others as well, oh, Taj so Mahal. And amazing. Jimmy Cliff and, and um, Jason Mraz. And, yeah, Gautier and Cat Empire and everyone signed it. But yeah, Paul Simon's got behind us and I'm catching up with him in New York, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's really, yeah, those people get behind us because they see that the support gets to the ground. And that's yeah. one thing we're really proud of is that if people make donations, that mm. 100% of donations under a grand all go to the ground and over a grand we take 15% for admin. So um, just some little uh, technical things for tonight. If you are coming already, you've already got a ticket, um, go bring the gasometer and book in for your meals if you want to do meals because that's going to help you out. Um, if you want to get tickets, go to our website, thingreenline.org.au, or the Facebook page, Thing Green Line Foundation, or the gasometer's got them on their website too for tickets. Um, there will be tickets at the door, but, yeah, heaps better if you grab them beforehand. You probably want to get them beforehand. Yeah. Kid-friendly? Yeah, um, you're supervised, of course. Yes. <laughs> what do you mean? You Ideally. You're not dumping them off. <laughs> it's not a childcare centre. That's right. Fantastic. Now, John, you brought your guitar in. I did bring my guitar Sean's going to sing, isn't he? 
Is that yeah, what's happening? Yeah, no, we, we actually <laughs> want to endear people to the foundation. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, uh, this is an old scaredy song that we wrote uh, a few years ago, and really this is the material I'm drawing on for tonight because my other work, I'm, I'm the festival director and I'm a board member and I'm a whole lot of other things, and uh, it'll be great to do some comedy again tonight. The song all about Melbourne, actually. From the palm trees of St Kilda To the restaurants of Fitzroy from the hills of Lower Temple Stowe to the flatlands of Glenroy. From the breweries of Abbotsford to Doncaster's shopping town. From the Wobbies world of Forest Hill to the nightlife of Carrum Downs. Well, that's Melbourne. That's our Melbourne. Yeah. From the lavish wealth of Keylor to the poverty of Keylor Downs. From the arid deserts of Keylor North to the rainforests of Keylor Park. We've all been out to Kilsyth, to Nutfield and to Clyde. But if you find yourself in launching place, you'd say, where the hell am I? Well, that's Melbourne. That's our Melbourne. What about some of the other places in Australia? Let's see. Sydney's got that harbour. And Adelaide's got those churches. Brisbane's very hot a lot of the time. And Perth's very far away. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. From the palm trees of St Kilda to the palm trees of Fitzroy. From the palm trees of Lower Temple Stowe to the palm trees of Glenroy. Well, that's Melbourne. Come on, Melbourne. That's our Melbourne. We'll see you at the gasso tonight. That's Melbourne. That's our Melbourne. Bobby as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just thinking that. It kind of dates the song. I don't think it's even it. there anymore. No, it's <laughs> not. They took it down. I reckon it should have been heritage listed. Well, yeah, like Luna Park, exactly. <laughs> we've, we've got a palm tree. Oh, yeah. That's, that's my favourite part of the whole song. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everywhere. thanks, guys, for coming in. You're welcome. Good to see you. Fantastic. Tonight, we'll see you down yeah. at the Gasso. Uh, doors open at 7 right through till 10.30 tonight. Now, in July, a new book hit the shelves called The Big, Big Bold and Blue released by CSIRO Publishing and co-edited by Dr James Fitzsimon and Associate Professor Jeff Westcott. This huge new text shines a light on what we've learnt about MPAs in Australia over the decade. And the editor of, one of the editors of the book, James Fitzsimons, joins us live to discuss the release of the book. Good morning, James, and welcome to Marinara. Good morning, yeah, thank you. Um, I've I, I got to say, first, congratulations, you know, new authors and new editors. It's, it must be like, you know, a new, having a new child. Yeah, it's about three years back-to-back back from <laughs> um, uh, conception to birth. Three years? It's bigger than a new child. 
It is indeed, and um, I guess we're lucky enough to have had um, great authors from around the country, both from academia, from government and from different industry sectors contributing to this, this big project. Yes, I was going to say, that, you know, there's over 430 pages, something like 24 chapters. How many authors were there? I kind of lost count, I've got to say. There was about 30-odd authors um, from, again, around Australia and different parts of the world as well. Wow. And a foreword by Tim Winton, and as well as the uh, Director-General of the IUCN, kind of the Conservation Union, Inga Anderson. Absolutely. Tim was very generous in offering a, a last-minute foreword, and it was a really nice foreword about his, I guess, back history yeah. of involvement in, in the marine space um, from a child growing up and sort of seeing, um, I guess, the depletion of marine resources and knowing that he had to do something about it. Yeah, it was a real... I mean, when I read that, that forward, I, I kind of thought, yeah, it's a real kind of just reflection on why we should worry about this stuff. Absolutely. You know, why it matters. And then what you guys have gone and done is kind of brought together with the subtitle of um, Lessons from Australia's MPAs, Marine Protected Areas. Um, what, what actually drove you to produce... This, this kind of this book? Well, there's been a lot of activity in developing marine protected areas in Australia for the past 20 years or so. I mean, we've grown our system quite dramatically from about 7% to about 36% in the last 20 years, and Australia is seen as a world leader in developing MPA networks, and the rest of the world's looking towards Australia. But there's very few single places where all those lessons are brought together. So Jeff Westcott and myself decided to bring those together, but also to get the lessons from those people that actually knew how the systems were created. It wasn't just, I guess, our commentators or academics looking from afar. We wanted to actually get the experiences of those that were involved in creating them. And so, so for some of these people, you know, as the practitioners of these, the, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's the one about the Western Australian system, there's yep. another one about the South Australian system, there's a chapter about um, ways of boundary, using boundaries and different types of jurisdictional arrangements. So these are written by the practitioners. I mean, in, in a way, for some of them, it must be kind of closure. You know, like it's like, you know, I'm getting to tell people people about what, what the pain or the happiness or whatever it was that we went through. Absolutely. And so that we wanted the lessons both positive and negative in there as well. So, you know, and where to from here? So it's, mm. it's basically, it's a broad um, look at different parts of the network. I, I actually don't, don't, I was thinking as I was flipping through the other day, I don't know of a similar book. Like, I don't think this exists. No, I don't think there is either, and that's why we thought it was a very necessary um, piece of work to do. There was a thing that I learnt in... I mean, I learned a thousand things, but there was a particular fun, interesting one was, you know, um, uh, those who know of the, the first... Uh, national Park in Australia, which is Royal. That's right. Royal yes. is yep. it Royal National? Or? Royal National Park. Royal yes. National Park in, in Sydney. Sydney. Mm. Yeah, so just kind of just south of Sydney. Yep. I did not know that it also protected the intertidal and the shallow subtitle. So huh. it's technically the first marine protected area in Australia. That's right. That's remarkable. I'd always thought, you know, oh, it was Harold Holt Marine Reserve or whatever, you know, you come, you know many years later in the seventies, but there's a hundred years before that. We it's technically the first marine protected area in the world. Yeah, wow. Yep. That's pretty cool. James, it's a beautiful book. It's a fantastic compendium of all this wonderful information. Um, lessons learnt, obviously, from the marine protected areas in Australia. Is there, is there a wrap-up chapter? I haven't had a chance to no, look is. at it yet, there but is. there's a wrap-up yeah. chapter of what, where do we go from here? Like something that you can give to your local politician and say, cop this. This is, this is really nicely synthesising all the wonderful things that we've learnt. There is, Dr Beach, and there's a synthesis at the back, and some of the key lessons learnt are that marine protected areas, I guess, are always contested, at least at first. And so we know um, there's lots of, I guess, excitement in the media, um, excitement from stakeholder groups when MPAs are talked about and are proposed. And in the recent Australian Government's Commonwealth Marine Reserve process, there was 740,000 public submissions to that process. Wow. So a lot of interest from out there. 
Um, and I guess what we also have learned, though, that after, say, five or ten years, a lot of that negativity and bad press goes away and those stakeholders that were opposed to MPAs actually became quite supportive. I think that the, the, the couple of th- that synthesis chapter that um, Dr. Beach, that you're talking about is um, uh, that to me really did bring it together. You know, it's got this really simple kind of um, here's the headline, here's the kind of evidence base from those who are in it. And you know, for me, the three lessons that stood out, the one that you just mentioned, um, there was a there's a very clear lesson in there about think about when you declare them are they multi-use or no no take. That was a, you know, that, that there's a whole lot of evidence, you know, for depending on what you're trying to achieve, that you need to be purposeful about whether you're going to make them multi-use or no-take. Absolutely. And there's another one about what actually drives the location of them. And there's a nifty heading, I think, something like, you know, is it, what was it, is it really science or real politic? That's right. And, and a lot of the commentary, particularly from the academic side of things, is is criticising where MPAs are placed. But the reality is these are these are public land use, are public mm-hmm. sea use allocation processes. And there are various stakeholders you have to consider. And it is a balance between where they should be placed based on the science and also where best place for stakeholder engagement as well. I remember sitting in an audience once when it may have even been Professor Bill Ballantyne, the late great Professor Bill Ballantyne, the New Zealand kind of father of um, MPAs. Where, the, where there is a beautiful MPA up at Lee where he was. Uh, yeah. And, and I remember that, and I think it may have been him who said something like, um, you know, whilst I can't remember the exact quote, and I don't even know when it was him, so if it wasn't him, I apologise, Bill. But you know, it was this statement about, you know, let's, be, let's face it, you know, we can have all the evidence we need, but MPAs are usually placed on where it's a good place to have lunch. You know, it ends up being, you know, it's because it's about people's access and people's use and even if you've got all kinds of other reasons for doing it, it's going to end up being that's what the driver will be. Absolutely. Um, But we have really improved the science and we have really been more strategic, particularly in the past 20 years or so, in terms of using good um, processes like considering bioregions, different habitat types and thinking about getting representative systems of MPAs. Now, this um, multi-use or no-take, sorry, I jumped ahead, you were going to say something about that. It, It seems like one of the really big things that matters. Absolutely, and, and that varies around the country. Um, so each state and territories have their own MPAs. Uh, Victoria has a system of no-take marine protected areas, and so they're very clear they're marine national parks or marine sanctuaries. Compare that to, say, New South Wales, which have very large MPAs, but they're zoned. So some are no-take, some are multi-use, and it makes it harder for the general public to really understand what MPAs are about when you get that big variety of different uses in a single protected area category. And so you could conceive be having no fishing, no mining, no use, no, no taking of anything at all right next to an area where you might be able to do mining and or fishing. Absolutely. And, yep. yeah, one of the interesting points, I think, then, um, Dr Beach, was, was it kind of blurred in the mind of the public. And it does. What actually I mean, is an MPA. Yeah, we've been to, like, Lady Musgrave Island on the Barrier Reef. Beautiful place, wonderful, several times camping, which is in the middle of the Barrier Reef or the southern end of it, and it's in a marine protected area, but you can still go fishing with a handline. Yep. And that is confusing. You can see yeah. people that go there and they say, but hang on, I thought this was all protected, but I can still dangle a line. And Well, yes, you can in this area. And there's really complicated boundaries there, whereas one would kind of hope, okay, and this might be a naive hope, but that <laughs> you would just ban everything from, you know, ban fishing from all over the place. But no. 
No, it is mixed. That, that's exactly right. Um, so again, that, that approach varies across the country, um, and it's it is something that I think does confuse the system. And but compare that to national parks on land, where we all know what yeah. the uses are. It's quite different in the water. Yeah, it's a bit like saying we'll have a national park where you're allowed to go and actually cut down all the trees, but only with an axe. Not with a chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or something like that. Anyway, the other thing that came out is, and this seems to be a, learn, a, a kind of a lesson that's been learnt by those who are helping establish them in various jurisdictions, was do you do them one at a time over many years or do you do them all in one go? And that seems to have been a really interesting difference in different places and hard fought. Absolutely. So Victoria, South Australia and the Commonwealth processes have done them all in one go. So they've basically looked at their entire jurisdictions and worked out, OK, let's create a, a network for the whole jurisdiction in one hit. Places like New South Wales and Queensland have done them bit by bit. And there are pros and cons for both of those processes. So for those that do them all at once, I guess you can look across the board, pick a representative system, have a whole stakeholder process around that. The negatives are that it can actually be quite hard for everyone to engage at a single time. Um, mm. For example, there was lots of attention in the, the Commonwealth process paid towards the southwest where there was lots of people, but those up in the north and the northwest where there's very little people, it was very hard for, say, the NGOs and stakeholders as well to really get a grasp and put their attention to something like that at the same time. And then the other thing that I learned out of it was if you do them one at a time over a very long time, it can actually draw out and almost dichotomise the positions of people, harden positions that you keep kind of almost, you know, replaying. Well, now we're in this area and we've moved along the coast and we're having the same argument again and again with the same players. Absolutely. And it, it creates a perception that MPAs are constantly being declared all over yeah, the place. Yeah, right. I'm going to just pick up one other little thing I love. There's a chapter in there about the perceptions of people for, for of MPAs of marine protected areas. And um, there's stats, there's this really interesting table of, of stats about who fishes and how often they fish and their views about protecting areas of the marine environment. And the take-home message that I got out of it, James, and you may correct me, was that essentially it didn't matter if you fish, it didn't matter how much you fish, pretty much everybody's got around about roughly the same view on the need for establishing protection in the marine environment. That's right, Anth, and we're really lucky to get this chapter because it actually brought out a lot of unpublished data around polling. Yeah. And we rarely get that into the, into the science and the academic literature. And it really does show that. It shows that people that do fish also care about marine conservation and, you know, want to see marine parks out there. So it does highlight that that sort of the noisy section in the media often isn't representative of, of the true true side of red fishing. Well, it's a great book, and at 90 bucks, it's a good read, um, uh, you know, particularly for a nerd like me. Now, I suspect that you know, um, you're targeting this for nerds. Like, like, Who are you targeting this for? Look, I think it's a, it's a broad range. I mean, yes, it is a technical book, but it's also uh, it's, you know, the short chapters. They're easy to read chapters, but it is very much for people working in the sector. But you know, I, I think the general public can, can pick it up as well. So we're, we're lucky enough, actually, to have, have a, um, one to give away here. Now, it's got to be for a subscriber, and you've got to answer a question. So d- don't ring if you don't really want to nerd out on a, on a textbook about marine protected areas. But you, the question is, what does MPA stand for? The number is 93881027. You've got to be a subscriber. Kent will take your call. That's a tricky question. I know, though. MPA. I'm what does it stand for? Just racking my brain. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> now, you've got to want this book, OK? Because, you know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a text. James, just before we let you go, is there, is there, if, so if I were to go and set up an MPA, wanted to do that, wanted to do it in the best possible way, in the best place, 
What would be my top three things to look for? I think you'd go out and you'd look at, okay, what do we want to achieve? Where are the habitat types we want to protect? Um, so Australia has international obligations around getting representative systems. So you want, actually want to look across that bioregion, work out where the habitats are, and then work out where you might best place it. But then you've also got to look out, of course, what are the other uses in that part of the marine space at the moment and go through that public consultation process. So, again, Australia is strong on both identification through science but also public consultation. OK, given that, if you had your druthers, where would you put your next MPA? Well, that's a great question. So there's some parts of, of the Australian waters that have no MPAs at the moment, so places like um, uh, yeah, Christmas Island, Cocos Keeling Islands have nothing. But there are other bioregions that have no strict protection, and we want to get a bit more strict protection out there in most of our bioregions around the country. So there are plenty of places. The maps are in the book, Dr Beach, and I highly encourage um, <laughs> listeners to go out and check it out. And uh, that, that has gone, by the way. Someone knew the answer to that question, which is the MPA-protected areas. <laughs> thank you. Hey, James, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking about this this morning. Really good. Well done. Congratulations yet again. Thank you, Anthony. And um, we will... We'll, when's the next one? Uh, not for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about whales, Dr. Well, there's a, couple, there's a new item. Um, well, not, about, about a week ago, some of you might have seen that people have discovered what they think is a new species of whale, a new species of um, toothed whale. Um, Love it. Which is washed up in the Bering Sea on St George Island, and people thought it was a bear's beaked whale, but looking at DNA, it, apparently it's not. And there were three specimens which were... Collected in Japan, I think in 2013, and they've gone back into museum specimens and, specimens and looked at the DNA. And who'd have thunk it? But there's a new species of beaked whale which has been um, flapping around in the oceans for quite a while, undiscovered. And let's let's be clear that so it's a whale, so it's not microscopic, is it? No, this thing is 7.3 metres in length. <laughs> okay. Wow! So, yeah, so you don't, you don't you need you your underwater microscope, which we were talking so about the other day. Let's to, think um, about to you know, like uh, things in, you know that perhaps we see every day that are 7.3 metres long. What is that? Like a tram? Yeah. That's probably, it's a tram. Okay. So how do you miss? Yeah. Well, that ocean is pretty big. I, I mean, know, how long have we been looking for a missing airline and, you know, we can't find it? But I know. It, I just, is I, it just I extremely rare? Is that part of it? Or is it, it kind of does look a little bit like another whale, a bird's beak whale, but still. There's been an assumption that it's the same one. Yeah. It's got the Harry Potter invisibility oh, cloak, maybe. Yeah, it, it is. Has, it has. is. It's kind of, um, yeah, it must just turn sideways in the light. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like... So I just think that is a sensational piece of news that in 2016 we can discover a new species of whale. Mm. You know, not not amoeba. It's whale. It's, it's way cool. Whale cool. I just, it, it, and it just that was published in the Journal of um, Marine Mammal Science. Now, also, so wanna, it's real. Yeah, I want to <laughs> drag our attention to a, a review which I alluded to at the beginning of the show, which has also appeared in the Journal of Marine Mammal Science, and this is led by a guy called Robert Pittman who is at the Southwest Fisheries Science Centre um, in... Oh, no, no, in La Jolla, in La Jolla, in La California. Jolla. And this is a review looking at humpback whales and bringing together lots of different... So, so it's a review, he's going into the literature and he's pulling out lots of bits of disparate information, bringing them all together for people, a, a little bit like what we were talking about before with mm -hmm. um, yeah, know, James. the books. Yeah, yeah, James. Yeah. And this is on reports of humpback whales coming in to fight mammal-eating killer whales. That's killer whales, orcas. Some of them just eat fish, but there are some that are well-known, and we call these kind of ecotypes or, or groups of killer whales, that will eat mammals. So they will eat other whales, particularly baby humpback whales, and they will, well, not in particular baby humpback whales, but all sorts of stuff like leopard seals, Australian fur seals, lots of things. They, you know, killer whales. That's why the names, killer yeah. whales. 
Yet Stella seals mm. as well. Mm. Yeah, I love that name. Otters, Stella even. Seal. Even otters. Otters and, yeah, and yeah. fish. Lots of reports. Um, well, several reports, but this guy's managed to get together 119 different reports about killer whales coming in, about humpback whales coming in and mobbing killer whales. Now, you can imagine that, yeah, okay, if there's a bunch of humpback whales and if there's a baby whale there and the mum a whale is there with it and a killer whale comes in, then sure, she's going to mob it. And but so this mobbing is, is a bit like, you know, you see birds, you know, kind of come down and mob other birds if something gets near yeah, their or, nest. Or, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or dogs, you know, taking yeah. a dog for a walk in the park and, you know, a whole lot of noisy miners will come down and just go... Yeah. Meh, 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 meh. So that's the kind of behaviour that That's the kind of behaviour. But killer, uh, humpback whales are equipped to be able to do this pretty well because they have very large pectoral fins, mm-hmm. five metres long. So these are the ones that go out, you know, imagine sticking your arm out to the left and the right, they're the pectoral fins, not the ones on your back or yeah, not the yeah, ones yeah. on your, you know, And they're ten, 10 metres from tip to tip. Ten minutes. Well, each one is five metres in length. And you might remember the humpback Could whales have kind of gnarly edges to those pectoral yeah, fins. Yeah. A lot of them are, are barnacles that have been there for a long time. And this makes them pretty effective weapons. They can kind of flap those around. But what, really and they use that to drive off other whales. Splash like around and you know, yeah, just right. generally cause mayhem. What they can do also oh, is they can corral a baby humpback whale. No. So they all get around the outside... So like heads, heads in, wagons. yeah, that's right. <laughs> heads in, tails out, flapping to prevent killer whales from getting in. But and that's kind of understandable if you're, okay. in, a, if you're in a family group. Yeah. Um, but the really interesting thing is that this guy has unearthed a lot of reports of killer whales. Uh, I'm getting confused with my whales now. But humpback whales, if they see killer whales or if they hear killer whales because apparently they can detect this happening at up to 7k distance yeah wow they will go in see what's happening and even if those killer whales are not attacking humpback whales or baby humpback whales say it's a leopard seal um there's even been a report of humpback whales coming in and disrupting killer whales trying to get fish that the humpback whales will undergo this aggressive behavior to get the killer whales out Hang of there. Hang on, so, so, this is, so the humpback whales are doing this. I, okay, I can get it doing it for your, your kids. For your family, yeah. you know, Richard Dawkins, Selfish Gene, yeah. all of that. You but know. they're doing it for other species. They're doing it for other species and they're... No. Do, well, they're doing... It, like, <laughs> it, it, yeah, who'd have thunk it? Um, and we've so, got so incredible evidence of this. Well, lots of reports and you can't be sure. I mean, you can't know mm-hmm. exactly what's going on in the humpback whale's mind whether it's thinking, I, you know, I, I just love the earth and I just, for some reason I just dislike <laughs> killer whales and no matter what they're going to do and no matter who they're going to attack, even if it's not one of my kin, if it's not one of my relatives, even if it's a, not a distant relative, yeah, another species, I'm going to come in and disrupt it. Is there, is there potential that there's something kind of programmed in their, in their brains that the this is just an automated response. Yeah. So it's not like they're thinking to be altruistic. Exactly. I think, I think you've hit the like nail a f- on, on the head. Fight, yeah, I, like I, I, gonna, I don't want to be the yeah. party pooper here and say this is not <laughs> altruism, but there is the possibility that, okay, so the humpback whales are very good at listening to, they can hear the killer whales make particular sounds, which is when they're attacking something. So they'll head over there, might be 7K distance, and once, once they get there and they can actually clock them, they can eyeball them, they might still engage in this behaviour, even if it's not humpback whales. So, mm. so there are yeah, reports in this of them coming in, seeing other humpback whales get harassed, 
they engage in it all. You know, they get rid of the killer whales. They, but if they, they come ninja, in, it, they ninja petrels. Yeah, if yeah. it's a different species, not always do they engage in that flapping around with the pectoral fins and mm. getting rid of the killer whales. But half of the time, at least, they do still nevertheless do that according to Robert Pittman and all this so, material that he's brought together. I can imagine there's a... So, so killer whales, you know, have got their thing, they do their shtick, and then, and, and, and you know, I don't know, there's probably a finite amount of killer whales around. If humpback whales come in and disrupt the eating of any killer whale and stop them from getting any meal in a way that would put a dint in the fitness of the killer whales... Yeah. ..and they'd be less likely to be able to attack... So, so you can kind of even see a selfish reason, for selfish gene reason for doing it. But at the, on the same level, well, with, with that, with that argument, if, they, if you were going to disrupt the killer whales, knocking off a school of fish or some leopard seals, then presumably they're going to be hungry and they're going to go off and they might nail one of your own. Mm. This is a conundrum. It, it because is a conundrum. Because the way genetics is structured and, and, and evolutionary biology is that, that you're not meant to do anything for the sake of it. Yeah, not meant is meant to be a genetic gain for you. Yeah, so humpback, humpback whales are baleen whales. They don't have teeth, unlike you know, lots of other whales, sperm whales, and including this group, the killer whales and the dolphins and all of those things. Um, so killer whales do like to go for humpback whale babies, but there's lots of different examples that we can see so you can you can see scars on humpback whales where killer whales have attacked them mm. and this happens either in the um well lots of different places but primarily we think it's in the breeding places so where they go on their way up to the lower latitudes where they want to breed where it's warm and one of the reasons we think that they breed in those warm areas so we all know about what we don't all know about but there are Many of us are aware of how the humpback whales go up the right-hand side and the left-hand side of our continent, East Australia, West Australia, from the south. From the, south the cold south. The cold south mm. where they feed and they will breed up in, in the, the warmer north, areas. Yeah. Yeah, and we believe that the reason why they breed up in those warmer areas is because killer whales hang out there a lot less. Mm. Killer whales are going to be down in the higher latitudes yeah. where there's more food for them and also more humpback whales mm. that they can get, but they, they don't like it when it's kind of warm and tropical. So that is hey, isn't that a why remarkable, we think that they yeah. go up north to the tropics that a remarkable to driver? To, you know, the, the, like humpback whales are what, you know, minimum, well, when they're born, what are they, seven, five, seven metres? Uh, yeah, when they're yeah born. The, the little guys are about six or seven metres. Yeah, and then their adults are like 40, 30, 40 metres. You know, and to think that something that big goes, no, you know what, I'm going to swim up the side of the country to get away from the possibility of being that attacked. Is, that's by, one of the, know, one of the things like, that wow. this guy points out that is amazing. <laughs> this mass migration is driven, as far as we know, by it getting away from killer whales. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it is a pretty good reason. I think I would move suburbs if I had somebody <laughs> in my suburb who was um, coming, in, a, a, coming in to uh, try and attack me or my family. How very interesting. We've got... Um, there's that music. You got a Indeed. Quick... Thank you, Dr. Beach. How very interesting. Hey, thank you to uh, all our guests today. Sean Wilmore. From the Thin Green Line. Yes, and John Fleming, also from the Thin Green Line. Professor, Dr. Professor John. 
I think. Fleming, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> Dr. Uh, James Fitzsimons Fantastic. as well. And thank you, Kent. He's done an amazing job out there. Lots and, of phone calls today. And get down to the gasso tonight. Yes. Yeah, 7 o'clock. Get down to the gasso and uh, all funds raised going towards the thin green line. Is it officially the gasso? I mean, the gasometer. gasometer. We keep, we, we keep yeah, referring to it as the gasso, yeah. but some people might look up gasso and I don't know if it yeah, pops gasometer. up. Yeah, gasometer. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook Smith page. Um, next week's program, we've got a massive one. Mark Rodriguez, uh, Rob Gell and Mick Sowery are coming in to talk about Coast to Coast and Rex will be in the house as well. See you all. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.